Now joining us from Washington, D.C., New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold. Sorry about your longhorns. Sorry, not sorry about your longhorns. It's been, a, it's been like a 30-year drought for us. You have to understand. You know, I, I was down at the Sugar Bowl last week uh, for a story interviewing p- players from Washington and Texas. And I have to say, I was so impressed by the Washington players. I'm not surprised at all they won. Yeah. No, that was a, a, an amazing game. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. All right. So uh, down, to, uh, down to business. Um, we still have a, a migrant crisis. And I, what I noticed new about it was that there's now apparently some serious talk about perhaps relaxing the sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba that seem to be uh, driving so much of this migration because they've, they've made economic conditions in those countries worse. Now, is that being seriously considered in Washington? Well, you're right that it's a it's sort of a drastic move. Venezuela, you know, the fact that Venezuela is bad, it's been something that basically the, one of the few things both parties have agreed upon. Cuba is a little more controversial. But you're right that, like, you know, I think the logic of sanctions had always been, well, we'll squeeze the country enough, and then eventually there'll be unrest from within, and that'll topple the government. Um, that seemed like it was happening for a while under President Trump, but then it didn't happen. And now what it's doing is just squeezing people out of Venezuela. They're now coming to America through crossing the Darien Gap in Panama. So, yeah, you can see why people are talking about that in Washington. As, as un- distasteful as I think it would be to relax sanctions in Venezuela, I think they would rather have those people in Venezuela than yeah. have them in New York. Now, I'm, I'm curious. Did anybody th- think about that? when they were imposing these sanctions? Okay, we want to punish these people, but of course you never really punish the leaders when you do something like this. You basically make living conditions more miserable. And, and they were thinking the people would just, would just hang around and overthrow the government rather than flee north to America? Yeah, you know, and I think what changed was we had always, the people in Washington had always thought of migration differently uh, north of Central America or Central America and north and South America. That's because there was this thing, the Darien Gap in Panama, like 50 miles of impenetrable jungle that made it really hard to go on foot from South America to here, to the U.S. But lately, you know, because of, uh, you know, the large patterns of migration, better guiding, there's lots and lots of people cross that quote unquote impenetrable gap all the time. And so I think it is that's changed the calculus for people in Venezuela and it maybe changed the, America's calculus about how to treat Venezuela. Right. The other issue, of course, is uh, aid to Ukraine. Is uh, Ukraine issued another appeal today saying uh, we need help. It looks like the, the counteroffensive that we were all hoping would uh, take root has not had the desired effect. Uh, Russia is still uh, hanging in there. Uh, is there a real possibility that Congress is going to say uh, that's it, no more aid? I think there is. I mean, as you know, in Washington, the Republicans have tied any new aid to Ukraine to some change at the border. Um, and I think Biden probably is getting more and more interested in making a change at the border, given how terrible the, the migration crisis is down there. So maybe there will be some sort of agreement on that that will provide more aid to Ukraine. I do think we will see more aid from the U.S. to the Ukraine this year, but I do think it's going to get he- held up by this fight over the border. All right, now let's talk uh, politics. We are what, less than two weeks away from the Iowa caucuses. The polls show that uh, Donald Trump should win the caucuses easily. After that comes uh, New Hampshire. Um, is there, and all, all the discussion has been, is there anything that could happen in any of the numerous court cases against Trump that would change this equation, that would hurt him in any way. So where do you come down on that? 
Well, I don't think anything's going to change it in the primary. I still think there's a chance he could lose to Nikki Haley in the primary. You know, if Nikki Haley does well in New Hampshire and Trump starts to seem like old news, I don't think that's very likely, but it could happen. But it's not going to be because of the court case. In fact, the court case has helped Trump in the primary. Um, I think it could matter in the general if Trump is convicted, if Trump's sent to jail. If, you know, if one of these cases actually concludes before Trump is, is, is before the election, it could matter with general election voters, people who sort of don't remember what, what Trump was like or sort of forgotten about January 6th. That could sort of drive home what a big deal it was and Trump's role in it. But it won't matter, I don't think, for the primary. And on the Democratic side, I know that I, I sometimes uh, have I'm on a, a radio show in London where they ask, you know, an American's opinion on politics. And and the question that keeps coming back is, are you guys really serious? There's, the Democrats have no backup plan in case uh, Joe Biden can't run? It just seems, it seems that people are incredulous that uh, Joe Biden is running again on the Democratic side. So uh, what's the current thinking there? Well, a lot of Americans, I think, are incredulous, too. <laughs> it, it, I think the Democrats don't want to seem like they're picking anybody uh, to be a backup, you know, because that would sort of imply both that Biden may not make it and that, that Kamala Harris is not a good choice. And both of those things are true. Biden is 80 or almost 80. Kamala Harris is very unpopular. So it would make sense to have somebody waiting in the wings, somebody like Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, or you know uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, somebody like that. And so maybe it, there is some sort of very secret plan, but there's no effort to kind of anoint uh, you know, a plan B or a plan C if Biden and or Kamala Harris can't do it. Yeah, that's what I told him. I said, I don't see anybody who who rises to the point of being able to uh, uh, win the win the nomination over Biden, unless, of course, God forbid, there's some uh, catastrophe between now and uh, and Election Day. So what do they have up their sleeve to address basically the age issue with members of their own party? Right. I mean, I. I think that the answer will be a combination of look at the economy, look at the world, look at you know look at the results. Basically, they'll say, you know, there's been all these successes for blue collar workers. The, you know, we had a soft landing on the economy. We didn't have a recession. We're fighting inflation. You know, all these great investments we've made. Jobs are doing great. So they'll make that pitch about you know, well, yeah, he looks old, but look at the results he's gotten. Um, I don't know if it's going to work. It seems like, and I think there'll be a hefty, hefty dose of Trump is crazy. Trump will bring back dictator, Trump bring a dictatorship. You know, the threats to democracy argument that worked so well for Democrats in 2022. Right. All right. Well, finally, uh, again, sorry about your Longhorns, but uh, who's your who's your pick for the uh, the big game, Washington versus oh. Michigan? I have divided loyalties because I mean, I- my my wife went to both schools, so I'm really oh, well. not sure which one to root for, although I think I will come down on the side of the Huskies. I mean, after watching the Huskies last night, they looked so good. The passing offense looked good. I just, Michigan looked good, too. And, you know, you never know. But it'll be played in a dome. There'll be no sort of weather factors, so the passing game should work well. Uh, if I had to bet, I'd bet on the Huskies. Good for you. <laughs> right answer. <laughs> You'd like to see somebody win who hasn't won in a long time. I think that, that, That's right. Exactly right. David Farenthold from the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. Right now, we're going to go to a conversation with Washington State's Democratic House Majority Leader Joe Fitzgibbon. He spoke to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich over the weekend about the upcoming legislative session in Olympia. And Matt began by asking Representative Fitzgibbon about how the excess revenue from the Climate Commitment Act, which amounts to about $940 million, is going to be used. We will be spending a lot of our time looking at how can we uh, invest those dollars in ways that have the biggest 
uh, impact for people of our state. Um, and I know one of the priorities that, that I'm excited about is helping transition more of our school bus fleet from, uh, from diesel buses to electric buses. You know, we know a lot about the impact on kids' health, kids' respiratory health, and kids' uh, cognitive and emotional development from, uh, from bad air pollution. You know, I remember walking behind a, the tailpipes of a school bus, walking through the parking lot on my way into, you know, into public school um, as a kid. You know, I didn't think much of it at the time, but we know a lot more now than we did then about those impacts. So I'm excited to get more electric school buses on the road, more diesel school buses off the road, more help for kids, uh, kids' health and a smaller impact on the climate. Regarding the Commitment Act, uh, is it in the back of your mind that there is an, an initiative out there that for a ballot measure that could make it on the November ballot to, to repeal this? And also uh, some Republicans are providing alternatives such as a rebate check to uh, registered car owners for some of that excess money that the governor is planning to spend. Is that in the back of your mind when you think about spending that excess money? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we're aware of and tracking the fact that there there is likely to be an initiative to repeal the Climate Commitment Act in uh, November. You know, I think that that just increases the importance of us doing a really good job of, of allocating the dollars that are coming in um, in really effective ways so that we can we can show all the voters of our state the way that uh, the Climate Commitment Act is benefiting our communities ahead of that vote in November. So, you know, I know there's, there's proposals out there from Republicans and Democrats, you know, different ideas for how to return the money to, to Washingtonians. And, you know, I think in general, Democrats want to see more of those dollars focused on the people who are really in the greatest need of them. And so, you know, for example, the governor proposed utility bill assistance for uh, for low and middle income Washingtonians. Police accountability and law enforcement is always a big issue. A bill didn't pass last session or earlier this year. A House Bill 1513, which would have basically mm-hmm. traffic safety for all, would prevent uh, police from making traffic stops over minor infractions like a broken taillight. Is that going to be revisited this session? Yeah, I'm sure we'll revisit it. I think the motivation there is that we know a lot of the really you know high conflict encounters um, between law enforcement and the public you know, come up in the context of something that's initially not that big of a deal, like a broken taillight. And so, you know, reducing the incidence of times when people in high emotions are coming into conflict with, you know, with law enforcement is probably a good thing for reducing the incidents that escalate into something, you know, more serious or potentially violent. I know that folks on who are working on that bill are looking at ways to narrow it so that we can, you know, make sure that there's no impact to public safety, that there's, you know, that, that we're not seeing people, you know, drive around with expired cars tabs or, or broken taillights in a, in a big way, but, you know, finding ways to help those folks get the resources to repair their taillights and, you know, so that, that there's not safety issues impacting cars and impacting other drivers um, on the road. But, you know, I definitely think we want to find more ways to reduce conflict between law enforcement and the public, you know, whether or not this is the year that that bill makes it, you know, it's too early for me to say, but, um, but I do think, you know, we're interested in finding ways to help law enforcement do their jobs and focus on the most serious crimes. We're hearing from Representative Joe Fitzgibbon, who is the state's Democratic House Majority Leader, talking with Kyra News Radio's Matt Markovich. And Matt brought up the increase in car theft that we all saw in 2023. And does the blame go to the restrictive vehicle pursuit law that's currently in place? So he asked Representative Fitzgibbon about that. You know, we made some pretty big changes to the vehicle pursuits law in 2023 session. I do not think the legislature is going to revisit it so soon after making that change before we really have enough evidence about how the changes that we've made have impacted the frequency of vehicle pursuits. We know that vehicle pursuits can be really dangerous, that oftentimes, you know, when people get into high-speed chases on our roads, that law enforcement officers are at risk uh, and that the general public is at risk because these are situations that can often really spiral out of control. They 
very few law enforcement agencies in Washington were engaging in vehicle pursuits for property crimes, you know, even before the change the legislature passed in 2021. So, um, you know, I, I know that the voters are like to have an opportunity to weigh in on this topic as well in the on the November ballot. But, you know, I, I would not expect the legislature is going to revisit the vehicle pursuits issue this year. Joe Fitzgibbon, Washington State's Democratic House Majority Leader. We're going to hear more from this conversation coming up in the eight o'clock hour, including the plans to address homelessness and fentanyl addiction in the next session of the legislature. Right now we head to Jerusalem where CBS correspondent Linda Gradstein has been reporting for months on the conflict in Gaza. And the big news today is the report that Israel's been pulling troops out of the war zone. And yet Prime Minister Netanyahu is warning people that this is not to be seen as a signal that the war is coming to an end. So I asked Linda for an update with that. So Israel has uh, begun pulling out several thousand soldiers, um, but there are still tens of thousands of soldiers still in Gaza. Um, and Israel says it's not the end of the fighting, as you said. Uh, there has been especially heavy fighting in the south, um, which is actually where most of the population is. Um, the fact, though, you know, Netanyahu can say whatever he wants, but it does seem to be a response to U.S. pressure to kind of change the direction of the fighting and to concentrate more on uh, attacks specifically against Hamas in Gaza City, which is actually in the north. Um, some of the uh, special forces troops have uncovered what they say is one of the uh, command and control centers of Hamas. They've uncovered huge amounts of weapons, including uh, some that were hidden in a nursery school, hidden in, in people's apartments. Uh, so they say the troops are continuing to go house to house uh, and the destruction, of course, in Gaza and the humanitarian crisis is growing. Um, so, you know, Israel says that they are far from finishing this operation. But I think there is the beginning of a change in the fighting. And uh, as you know, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is coming back yet again later this week. Linda, just glancing at some of the, the headlines and op-ed pieces in the Israeli press today, there seems to be growing skepticism that, in fact, it's even possible to wipe out Hamas and and uh, disable the tunnel network. What, what What is the prevailing opinion in Israel right now? Right. So, look, it's been now almost three months of fighting, uh, and Israel has not yet assassinated uh, the senior Hamas leadership. Uh, Yahya Sinwar, Mohammed Base, and others. You know, now Israel, you know, almost every day comes and says, you know, they killed this, you know, senior Hamas operative. But the, the top leadership seems to be evading uh, capture. And the tunnels are so extensive that Israel says it would not be able to destroy all of the tunnels. They've destroyed hundreds of them. Uh, but if they destroy all the tunnels, that would mean the complete destruction of Gaza. So then I think there is the beginning of a discussion of, well, if you can't destroy Hamas, then what do you do? You know, at what at some point the fighting is going to have to stop. And when do you say that you've achieved victory? How do you define victory? Um, at the same time, uh, several dozen parents uh, of uh, soldiers who have been killed sent a letter to the Secretary of State, including some of them are dual Israeli-American citizens, saying that stopping the war now would be a huge mistake and would basically give Hamas a victory and Hamas will then, you know, rehabilitate itself. Uh, so I think it's like the beginning of questioning, you know, what really are the aims of this war and are they achievable? CBS is Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. And I had a practical question for her. I mean, if they, if Israel kills off the Hamas leadership, 
who do you negotiate with? Well, the United States says you negotiate with the Palestinian Authority. I mean, since 2007, the Palestinians have been split with Hamas in control in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority, which is headed by Mahmoud Abbas uh, in Ramallah. The Palestinian Authority has recognized Israel um, and, you know, the United States has said that it wants a revitalized Palestinian Authority as a negotiating partner. Uh, now, Netanyahu has repeatedly said no, that the Palestinian Authority cannot be a partner. Uh, but I think there's a sense in Israel that Hamas, after what happened on October 7th and the really brutal massacre of more than 1,200 Israelis, including hundreds and hundreds of civilians, you know, can't really be a partner for negotiations. I don't think anybody, even the far left in Israel, thinks that Hamas can be a partner for any kind of permanent peace agreement. The question is, what about the Palestinian Authority? Uh, and there also are several people. In, so Mahmoud Abbas is 88. Uh, he's starting, I think, the 19th year of a four-year term. The Palestinian Authority is seen as kind of old and decrepit and corrupt. So, you know, can you bring in new people? There are a few people who are in jail. One name that's often mentioned is Marwan Barghouti, who is currently serving jail for involvement in terrorism during the Second Intifada. Uh, he has good, good ties with both Hamas and Fatah, So that's one possibility. But quite honestly, nobody in Israel right now is really talking about serious negotiations. They're so, in the middle of a war. Linda, does the Palestinian Authority want to run Gaza? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, they say yes. They say that they're willing to if it's part of a broader peace agreement. In other words, not just Gaza, but uh, if, if it really is a serious two-state solution. The two-state solution, which is, you know, U.N. Resolution 242, has always called for an independent Palestinian state in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. Uh, and so the Palestinian Authority, I think, is prepared to. Uh, but in any case, it won't be able to to rebuild Gaza without a huge amount of international help. I mean, I think that's something that uh, either, you know, the Gulf states or Saudi Arabia are going to have to take on. But again, you know, Israel is, has so far refused to offer any kind of serious plans uh, for the day after. CBS's Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Oof, I'm disturbed. I mean, I can hear it, the difference. Yeah. But it's pretty good. In the radio, in the car, with somebody listening to noise, yeah, who would know? In rural South Carolina, a local restaurant owner and part time mechanic reached a milestone in kindness. For today's Daily Dose of Kindness, brought to you by Heritage Homecraft, he gave away his 100th car. CBS's Mark Strassman has his story. This is Zacchaeus Kennard. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Zach Kennard's first car was big local news in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh my God. He has a keys to the new car. The 19 year old student got the 100th car Elliot Middleton has given away. As we first told you two years ago, this barbecue restaurant owner and trained mechanic knows his way under a hood. He takes donated clunkers, makes them run, and puts people without a car in the driver's seat. He makes sure applicants have a valid driver's license and a genuine need for a car. For single mom Jessica Litchfield, a 2004 Suzuki. This is a lifesaver. 86-year-old John Darby got a 1990 Mercedes. What? Free of charge. This is the, you are the third. Wow. I asked Middleton what keeps his engine running. The smiles on the faces when I donate a car. Got to do another one. 
Got to do another one. Got to do two more. How much longer can you do this? As long as my two hands can turn wrenches and my legs can keep moving, I don't see it ever stopping. With Elliot Middleton, there is such a thing as a free ride. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you. Mark Strassman, CBS News, Charleston, South Carolina. 748 and now from the Gian Ursula Show, which starts at 9, here is G. Scott. Wow. Mm. What a game. Uh, I don't know what to say, except that uh, Michael Penix is going to be a very rich man. What do you think? I think he's definitely going to make some money at the next level. Um, I think that um, I think the beautiful thing about this Washington Huskies team, and you guys have we've talked about this before, and you've heard me talk about it, so you already know what I'm going to say. I think that you see this team constantly win games by one score or less. They've got like six or seven of those wins, and it's just how they win and why they win. And the why they win is because of good culture. You know, it's time and time and again. Here they are, 13, 14 and 0 now? 13 and 0. Which one? Is what? 14. Yeah, they're they're 14. Here they are, 14 and 0. uh, Getting ready to go play for the national championship. This is already on paper. In my opinion, no matter what happens, I think this is the greatest Husky team of all time. Wow, of all time. Of all time. Mm. No question about it. And just the fact that. Here's another thing that's pretty cool. Every single game that they get ready to play, they're the underdog. Right? That's right. They were the underdog against Oregon. They were the underdog yesterday against Texas. They have been the underdog, but they have continued to win. Like, I think that there is a possibility on um, the national championship game. It's going to be, in my opinion, the first time that the United States of America is rooting for the University of Washington. Hmm. Because, let's be real, everybody loves an underdog. And I bet you, when it's when those Vegas expert folks put out the odds and, and put out the scores line, UW is going to be the underdog. But it was such a beautiful game. It was intense. It didn't have to go like that. It kind of felt like towards the end, it was about to try to fumble that game away. But there was something about it, like no matter what, even how close Texas got, they got to the 12-yard line with like 15 seconds left to go. You just knew. You're just like, it's just something about UW winning this game. I didn't just know. You knew. I was really They've been doing it. Here's the thing. How many games, if you're a Husky fan and you're listening right now, how many Husky games have had you nervous? Damn near all of them. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm curious, though, from Dave's question about uh, Michael Penix Jr. being yeah. a, a very rich man soon. What does happen to somebody like him? Say they win the national championship. You know, does he come back and play for the Huskies again? Or when does he enter like the NFL draft situation? He'll, he'll enter after this. Really? Yeah, this, this last no matter what, whether they win or lose. Right, right. Yeah, he's on. He's off. Yeah, okay. He's going there. So, um, you know, it's just going to be about what, what the GMs think of these different NFL teams and where he'll rank and which which team needs a quarterback and all that good stuff. I mean, but do we need a quarterback? The Seahawks? <laughs> I mean, that was a little sore topic right there. You know, because the Seahawks got man, they lost the other night, man. Mm-hmm. And I, that they told me I was only coming here talking about Huskies. I can't talk Seahawks right now. It's too I'm much. Sorry. <laughs> but uh yeah, it, it was it was really cool. Uh Dave, wait, you watched the game, Dave? Yeah. Yeah, I know. How could I he not? stayed up late? 
Well, it wasn't that late. Well, when AI is generating your commentary, you exactly can stay that's up right. late. I yeah. just push a button now. To <laughs> um, I I thought. I mean, I, I haven't watched every Husky game. I know they have this reputation for pulling things out at the last minute, but the way things were going, like that that fumbled uh, kickoff return, yeah. I thought uh, this is where the football gods taketh away. This oh. is, was, and then when the refs. Then, and then the the clock stops because of an injury on the field when they're trying to run it down. I said, "Oh, that's number two. Yeah. And then the refs put one second back on the clock. Right? right? That's number three. <laughs> Something's at work here. <laughs> Something's going on. They're yeah. going to take this game away from them. But no, they they hung in there. Where's so, the uh, culture coming from with this team? Is it the coach? Like absolutely. with Pete Carroll, yeah. it came for the Seahawks. It's yep. the coach. It's Kalen DeBoer. Okay. Kalen DeBoer came here and he uh, has done. So much. Again, I I said this to you guys the last time we talked about the Huskies. And for Husky fans that are are out here, they even played above their expectations, right? Like, Husky fans like, oh, we're going to be good this year. We're going to do these things. We're going to do all these things. If you would have told the average Husky fan, okay, I tell you what, this is going to happen. You guys are going to be 14-0. and You're going to win the Pac-12 because, you know, because everybody's done with the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is getting ready done. It's down to the Pac-2. You're going to be 14-0, and and then you're going to have a chance to play for a national championship game against the University of Michigan. A Husky fan would probably tell you, yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's how impressive this is, what they've done. Now, go ahead. Are you are you a betting man? Because I, I heard from a reliable source that you could have gotten odds of 7-1 to one like the day before that game. Wow. Yeah. Nah, I don't bet. I've never, I've <laughs> never placed a sports bet ever. Yeah. I think that is a very dangerous thing, PSA. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think it's a very Just dangerous curious. thing. So they got a, they got a tough game. So they beat, uh, did they beat Michigan? So I think that Alabama, if they'd have won, that would have given them a best chance. Mm-hmm. I think the University of Michigan, like no exaggeration, it's like, uh, how about this? They're Yvonne Drago, UW's Rocky. <laughs> Rocky Four, so it could happen. <laughs> but it's going to be tough. It's going to be. It's going to be tough. All right. You, you watched Rocky Four, right, Sully? Of course he did. Never ever wanted to come out and fight a Russian more than I ever did after watching that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Where does this come from? Well, because that's what happened. You come out of that movie, you're all fired no. up. Because that movie came out, I was, no. what, 18? When we left, before we left the movie, remember, he said, if and I can change, then you can change. You can change. everybody can change. You can change. She's got nine with Ursula. 834 is Seattle's Morning News. Let's talk inflation. The Federal Reserve has signaled it might start actually reducing interest rates this year. An indication the Fed thinks that sky-high inflation may be easing up. But for many Americans, prices at the grocery store remain stubbornly high. And Kyra News Radio's Heather Bosch has been looking into this. Dave, some shoppers tell me they suffer from sticker shock just walking through the grocery store. They say food prices... They seem to have gone up for a while now. If you look at prices year on year, it's... It's just rough right now. Oh, yeah, 100%. They definitely have gone up. Kevin says it's particularly noticeable in the soda and snack aisles. Things like that that I used to consider to be cheap, you know, snacks, food, treats for myself. I look at that now and just go, well, nope, that's not going to work. (laughs) Now it really is a treat. It's only a once in a while thing, huh? Exactly. But Vale tells me it's not only treats. Some everyday items cost more. Boxes of cereal. 
to pay like $9 for a box of a big box of Cheerios, I thought it was just hilarious. So what's going on? Herb Weisbaum is a contributing editor at Checkbook.org. He tells me your local farmer or grocery store is probably not behind much of the increase. Well, some of the largest food companies have been able to raise prices well above inflation. Food manufacturers like PepsiCo, which makes all kinds of things from Lay's potato chips to Quaker Oats. The New York Times reports that in the second quarter of 2023, PepsiCo raised prices about 15 percent and its profits doubled compared to the year before. PepsiCo's not alone either. According to Forbes, between 2021 and 2022, the food and beverage industry worldwide recorded more than $155 billion in profits. Inflation is coming down. Costs are coming down for the products to make these things. And yet some of these big name manufacturers are raising prices because it makes their stockholders happy because they can make money. Even if some consumers are cutting back, he says overall, the makers of name brand foods are still seeing some hefty profits. Now, to be fair, food manufacturers say they are paying more for labor, transportation and other costs. And they argue their products have been underpriced for years. And Weisbaum says if you don't want to pay those higher prices, you can do something about it. You have to be a better shopper than ever before. For instance, look for the coupons, look for the digital coupons, look for in-store sales. The store brands today are really good. They're significantly cheaper. And just don't buy the stuff you think is overpriced. When enough people say enough already and stop buying the product and they see the revenue decline, that's when you'll see prices come down. Otherwise, there's no financial incentive for them to do anything. So instead of Cheerios, Dave, maybe go for the generic Simply O's. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they taste the same. A bag of O's. Yeah. yeah. Just a bag of O's. That's yeah. it. The, um, he talks about those digital coupons. I tried doing that once. I, yeah. I really did try to download the store app. Yeah. But the idea that I've got to go from product to product taking snapshots. Not all of them, codes. right? Well, it's I, just some. I do a lot of the work beforehand before I even walk do you, do to the you, grocery store. Do you store. really save a significant Absolute, amount? Absolutely. I'm a I'm not a big couponer. I'm not one of those like coupon clippers that keeps a book. But yeah, I mean, it, it was lessons learned from when I wasn't making a lot of money and I yeah. would only buy things for $2 or less. So coupons became pivotal and they still work no matter how much money. You're Although I making. don't really want the grocery store in my phone, too. If I feel like yes. I have so many apps and the last thing I want is Kroger tracking. You know what? I'm buying Here's the thing, not buying. If anybody's going to track you, I'd rather it be a grocery store because then at least I can get a discount on the foods that I want. <laughs> I mean, of, of all things, right? Food. Mm-hmm. That is central to our living. It does get a little frustrating when you have to go to three different stores and look for this coup- digital coupon. Yeah, and yeah. this, yeah, yeah, I get so a just little stick frustrated with, one, with that. Let them get to know you. Let them give you the discounts, and you win. Yeah, and well, you get a gas uh, discount on some. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, you you're the one who turned me on to the uh, you know the loyalty program mm-hmm. and the gas points. Oh my god! Because I didn't realize all this stuff was related. And with inflation, not a fill up goes by that I'm not getting a dollar off because groceries are expensive. Mm-hmm. So my discount on gas is more, and I, I just got see a it as dollar a dollar off a gallon. Oh, all the time, all the Yikes. time. You know how much money I spend on food and the family of four. Well, that's true. Come that's on right. now. I got ten cents off a gallon the other day, and I was feeling wow. very proud of myself. I just I just gave up the Lay's <laughs> potato chips, and anybody who knows me, they're. Oh. Gasping right now, but no, I'm just like, forget it. I'm just not not going to pay four bucks for a tiny bag yeah. of potato chips. That's what we've done, not too. Gonna. We've just skipped some of the luxury goodies that we might otherwise enjoy. Yeah, there you go. Well, <clears throat> too bad, Lay's, because I know Heather was one of your biggest customers, but, you know, <laughs> you'll probably be healthy. Are you just an original flavor gal? You're just a potato? Oh, yeah. <laughs> big old bag of potato chips. Big uh, old whatever. thing of sour cream. Oof. Oh, and I'm sour cream, too. Oh, there's the your downfall. Yeah.
848 Seattle's Morning News, and it's Mickey time. In addition to Mickey Gomez, we have uh, David Burbank, who's a member of Generation Smartphone and was on the uh, cutting edge of the uh, smartphone movement. So the reason, the reason this comes up is because the Peninsula School District has adopted a new, a new cell phone policy that blocks social media on its network and restricts the use of not just cell phones but smartwatches before school, during lunch, and after school. So I guess you're the, you're the mom of teenagers. Yes. Uh, can this possibly work? I believe so. And I think it needs to work. I mean, I love that my children have access to social media and they've got they, they have fun. I know what's on their phones because I check their phones. We talk about it. We talk about bullying online. Uh, you know, we we we're very open in our household. But I do want my children to have cell phones. I didn't have it growing up and I understand, you know, but we live in a different world. And now that I know that my children can check in or that I can check the mobile app and know exactly where they're where they are, mm. um, so I, you I'm track cool. them. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I know. Where's my kid? OK, mm-hmm. uh, there they are. They're where they said they were going to be. Or their phone is where they said they're going to be. True. I mean, that's true. But I do believe that my kids are where they said they were going to be. Sometimes I sneak in just to make sure. But I don't think that kids need to have cell phones in school or actually have service that allows them to be on social media. It's mm-hmm. disrupt. It's disruptive. I agree with the teachers. Um, what I do like uh, or, or what has happened is during the day, I'll get a text message from my kids because we're in a group chat together. And I text back and I say, why are you texting me? Right. Please don't respond if you're in class. No, I'm in break. I'm walking the halls. Get to class. Yeah. Yeah. So, David, what was it? What was the pressure like? I mean, so you were there Mm -hmm. before cell phones happened and then they happened on your watch. Is that what what, what it was? Well, so essentially I I went I, I graduated in 2014. So I the the main sort of boom of smartphones being in kind of everyone's hands uh, happened as I was sort of in middle school to high school. And I didn't have a smartphone until like my senior year of high school. So I a lot of this might be, uh, you know, uh, jealousy from seeing all the kids on their smartphones. But I am, am of the opinion that not only should kids just not, quote unquote, not be allowed, just take the phones away. I think with when you walk into every class, you should have to put your phone into a lockbox as you would, you know, going to a uh, uh, a special, uh, you know, a comedy special or something like that that I've heard people do because they don't want things filmed and put on the Internet. Um, I think the same should go for classrooms, because I think not only is it a huge distraction, not only can, you know, kids go on and, and be bullying other kids throughout the day, uh, but cheating. I think cheating is a huge thing. Um, because everything is so easy to search just right at your fingertips. And right. I think that's that's something that I would see kids do in class. And it would really bother me because it felt like I had to, you know, actually study. And, and it felt like a major disadvantage. I mean, cheating's and, been going on since before cell well, phones. Well, right, you know, right. find we a cleverer really, way really to do it. really, letters on our yes. pencil that to takes, give takes <laughs> That takes exactly. some, some actual, that you know, back in the day. I, I loved it when teachers said you could have one small note Mm-hmm. One small little note yeah. to put the answers there, that you need. There's a gamesmanship to that, yeah. and I enjoy that. I don't. I don't enjoy you know kids just going directly on their yeah. phone and, and find finding the answer right there. I but, always go right to safety because mm-hmm. you know with the amount of school shootings that we have to cover here in the news, I'm hyper aware of that happening, and I want to be able to reach my child immediately if some emergency happens at their school. If their cell phone is tied up in a locked drawer in their teacher's desk. 
I can't reach them. Is that unreasonable to, to to let them have cell phones for that purpose? It's not that I think that you're be, that that's an unreasonable request, but here's one thing that one teacher has asked of of their students and said, "Hey, listen, you come into class, and we're going to go ahead and put your cell phone in a bin, mm-hmm. and what's going to happen is that." We're going to learn the assignment and then I'm going to give you the homework and then you can either start on the homework and complete it in here or you can go grab your cell phone. My good, it's like the cell phone is in a hostage situation, right? Like here's gonna, here's the deal. It's like negotiations. But what's happening is that kids aren't listening. Kids yeah. are not turning off their notifications. That it's distracting. Uh, one teacher in the article that I read said that. You know, she's like, who are you texting? And she's like, my mom, my mom is texting me. So parents also have to be, Ah. you know, aware of the fact that, hey, your kid is in school. Don't text your kid. Mm. So, no. So there's no way that you can cultivate discipline where kids will just voluntarily turn turn it silence it and put it in their pockets discipline on an addictive substance (laughs) i mean think about it adults can't even do that when you go somewhere and you're like cell phones turn your cell phones off please and then someone starts a lecture or you're listening to someone speak and then the next thing you know you hear do 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 and you're like come on and then that person is going through their phone trying to turn it off teachers are dealing with that worst ringtone ever by the way oh that that (laughs) so um i I agree i think you know cell phones take them away give them back at the end of class good luck peninsula school district Mm -hmm. mickey gomez thank you Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.